Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. And this uh, morning, I want to speak in this last chapel service on the person God uses, uh, leadership principles from the book of James. Last week, uh, my wife and I met a number of remarkable people as we ministered there in the Sudan. Uh, Almost all of these uh, men and women, uh, very limited education, uh, unbelievable poverty out of which they come. One man in particular, Charlotte and her group, every day went out into a village uh, going from area to area doing evangelism and assisting him as he begins a church plant uh, under a tree out in the midst of these uh, villages. Uh, Pastor Sam, as we uh, refer to him, is from Uganda. When he was 13 years old, he was out playing on the edge of his village when a marauding tribe of thugs came in. And as he was out on the outskirts hiding in the bushes, he watched his mother, his father, and all of his siblings brutally murdered. But in God's grace, he was able to find those that would love him and care for him. And eventually he came to faith in Christ. And then God called him to be a pastor. He's a very gracious man, a very humble man. In fact, uh, at the end of our time with him, we laid hands on him and prayed for him. And then we informed him that we wanted to present to him a gift uh, that we hoped would assist him in the days ahead. And that gift uh, consisted of two ox and a plow so that he would be able to provide for himself and for his church in the days ahead. He will be a by vocational minister as a farmer. Uh, we also agreed to provide for him the seed that he would need to begin his garden. And uh, unbeknownst to him, a number of us are also going to help him uh, with the expenses he will need to build a hut, a home right there where he will be planting this church. He is a remarkable man, a very fine preacher already, and a very gracious man, a very humble man. As I thought about what it uh, takes and what is involved in being a leader in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Pastor Sam is a wonderful example of what that looks like. And also, I think what you discover is in the book of James, a book of remarkable wisdom. In fact, it has sometimes been referred to as the Amos of the New Testament because in 108 verses there are 54 imperatives, words of command. It's also been called the Proverbs of the New Testament because it is a book filled with wisdom, in particular wisdom drawn from the life of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, some New Testament scholars have identified at least 26 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in this book. It is a book that provides a a portrait of the character and the conduct of a mature believer, of a a man who is qualified then to be a leader in the church. 
It is a book that beautifully blends both belief and behavior. That is, it addresses both how a man thinks, but very clearly how this man lives. And when I think about the kind of person that meets the qualifications for leadership in the body of Christ, I think the book of James provides a wonderful portrait of that kind of individual. You see, leadership is influence. As has been well said, if no one is following, then you are not leading. And yet we're not interested just in leadership per se, but we're interested in godly leadership. That is a man and a woman who has godly influence. And I believe godly influence recognizes at least two very crucial components that must always go together. One is it does matter both in terms of the ends that we're trying to achieve, but also it matters the means. In other words, God is not just concerned with how you get to the end. He is concerned with the end. But he's not just concerned with where you go in terms of goals, but God is also vitally interested in just how you get there. In other words, for a faithful servant of Jesus, pure pragmatism is never, ever an option. And so this morning, because of time, I'm going to restrict myself simply to chapter 1. And in chapter 1, I want to very quickly highlight for you in a survey kind of a way, eight principles of leadership. Uh, Eight principles of godly maturity that James gives us in his book. First of all, wise, mature leaders count it joy when trials come. In verse 2 through 4, James writes, my brethren, he'll use that phrase repeatedly throughout the book as kind of a transitional device from one subject to another. It's also a term of endearment because it softens some of the heavy blows that he delivers to his audience. My brethren, count it All joy when you fall into various or different kinds of trials, knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces patience. Perhaps the best word there would be endurance. But but let patience or endurance have its perfect here. The idea is its complete work. That you may be mature, uh, complete, perfect, lacking not a thing. James says that the mature leader will count it a joy when trials come. He makes it clear that trials are going to come in all of our lives. Again, having been in the Sudan for the last uh, week or so, uh, I've come to understand that many times I blow out of proportion what I consider to be a trial. Some of the things I go through here in this context are nothing in comparison to what I saw in the lives of these men and women Last week, we were struck by the fact that as we were ministering among 1,600 uh, fellow believers from those three countries of Uganda, Congo, uh, and the Sudan, it was, it was fascinating to note how few men there were in their 70s and 60s and 50s and even in their 40s. You say, why? The Civil War. Millions have been killed in that country in the last 20 years. And so most of the new leaders that are being raised up in these churches are men in their 20s and some even in their late teens. It's not ideal, but it's necessary given the context in which these people have lived for these past two decades. You talk about experiencing trials, and yet as these trials have come, I was amazed at the joy that they were able to exhibit. They recognize that God sends trials. They, they come from a divine hand. They come from a loving Heavenly Father. 
And he sends them for very good reasons. It says in the text, they come to test our faith. They come to produce endurance. They come to make us perfect and complete. In other words, God is getting us ready for game day, if you like. And so he sends to us these trials that provide a spiritual workout that help us reach that maturity that is essential if we're going to lead well the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, wise, mature leaders count it a joy when trials come. But number two, they also ask God for what they need. Look at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally. And without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, in in trust, in confidence, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? He is a double-minded man, literally a two-souled man. He is unstable in all of his ways. Wisdom. Let him ask for God, from God wisdom. You say, what do you think wisdom is? I've had a simple definition that's helped me throughout the years. It is the ability to see life from God's perspective and then act accordingly. Some have said that wisdom is godly knowledge applied. I like that. But it is the ability to see things as God sees things and then to take the appropriate action. Leroy Imes, a wonderful student of discipleship in his book, Be the Leader You Are Meant to Be, says it this way. A leader is one who sees more than others see. He sees further than others see. And he sees before others see. And you see, wisdom will help you avoid becoming a double-minded, a two-souled and unstable man in all of your ways. Wisdom will enable you to know Which battles are worth losing and which hills are worth dying on? Many times students go out and serve churches that are not very kind and not very helpful and loving to uh, those that lead them. And I recognize there are churches like that out there. But sometimes I also have discovered that some of our uh, ministers and some of our graduates go into churches and they lead in an unwise way. Uh, they drive down a stake and uh, they decide to defend a hill that really isn't worth defending. And so you discover through wisdom what battles are worth losing, what hills are worth dying on. Also, wisdom gives you the ability to understand both your strengths and your weaknesses equally well. In other words, it allows both truth and timing to enter into your thought patterns so that you are a wise Godly decision maker. In other words, wisdom will help you remember that the wrong action plus the wrong time always results in a disaster. And even the right action at the wrong time will usher in resistance. And the wrong action at the right time is simply a mistake. But the right action at the right time will equal godly success. And so he will ask God for what he needs. Number three. A wise leader will rest in what they have and keep things in proper perspective. Verses 9 through 11 address the proper perspective for a leader and eternal perspective. Let the lowly brother, I like the translation humble, let the humble brother glory in his exaltation. But let the rich in his humiliation. 
because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. The the flower fails and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. James encourages us to have a eternal perspective. James encourages you and me to be content in the Lord. Most of us in this room do not fall into that category of the of the rich man. No, our struggle is to be a man who recognizes that though we don't have much in this life, we do have much in Jesus. In fact, we recognize that the man who has Jesus plus nothing actually has everything. And the man who has everything minus Jesus actually has nothing. And so he will rest in what he has and he will keep things in proper perspective. Number four. The wise leader understands that God may test our faith, but he never tempts us to sin. In verses 12 through 16, this is the theme that he addresses. You will notice that some form of the word temptation occurs one, two, three, four, five, six times in verses 12 through 14. And so he says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, that is, he has been tested and demonstrated his worth, uh, he will receive the crown of life, the crown consisting of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. But keep this in mind. No one should say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, I recognize that what God sends as a trial, the evil one will try to use as a temptation. But never lose sight of the fact that you serve a good God. You serve a loving, heavenly Father who will not send to you temptations to sin, but He will send trials to strengthen your faith and to help you grow in maturity and wisdom. But no, here's how temptation works and what a deadly path it is. Verse 14, but each one is tempted. When he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed like a a wild beast or a foolish fish, he is being taken in by the bait. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. I often say in a very simple way, but a very true way, sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid and you will do things you would never do in your right mind and yet sin is very seductive is it not it sneaks up on us it is it is like that bait that attracts the wild animal and then suddenly he is captured and incapable of extricating himself he says no don't be deceived my beloved brethren every good gift And every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from a father who loves you, the father of lights, the father of creation, a father who never, ever changes, with whom there is no variation or no shadow of turning. Indeed, it is by his own graciousness that he has brought us forth. And that then helps us understand that God gives only good gifts to those he loves and he never changes. Verse 17 again, every good gift and every perfect gift. Think about that. Your father so loves you that whatever he allows to come through his divine hands is for your good. And it is perfect. And it comes from a God who is indeed the 
never-changing one. The God who is always consistent, reliable, eternal, and immutable. Indeed, one of His great gifts is your new birth of His own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of uh, His creatures. And so we rest in what we have and we keep things in proper perspective. We understand that God may test our faith but never tempt us to sin. We understand that God gives only good gifts and He never changes. But number six, we also understand that wise leaders listen well. They control their temper and they pursue godliness. This is verses 19 through 21. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be, number one, swift to hear. Number two, slow to speak. And number three, slow to wrath. One black preacher said it this way. God gave us two ears and one mouth. That must mean we should listen twice as much as we speak. Some of us struggle in that area. I happen to be one of those. I'm one that is rather rapid fire in my conversation. In fact, I suspect I'm the only person on the planet to ever get an A in sociology and an F in conduct in the same class. That's that's really a, a difficult thing to achieve. In fact, on the last day of class, Mr. Cantrell looked at me and said, Aiken, if you will just keep your mouth shut today, I will at least give you a D. I got an F. <clears throat> And so some of us are uh, not so good at being swift to hear and slow to speak, and yet I believe that's at the very heart of what it means to be a good leader. Good leaders do lead, but good leaders also listen. Uh, They are slow to speak, they are swift to hear, and they are slow to get angry or slow to become wrathful. Why? He tells you in verse 20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There is a righteous indignation, though most of us will seldom step into that particular world or live in that particular context. No, we often exhibit the wrath of man, and when we do, we bring dishonor to the name of Jesus, and we do nothing to build up the body of Christ. No, he says in verse 21, lay aside all filthiness. Isn't it interesting that he connects filthiness with the wrath of man? Lay aside all filthiness. And the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness that implanted word which is able to save your souls, to save you from the penalty of sin. But also I think in this context James would imply to also save you from the power of sin that you actually live out the new life that you have in Christ. No, good leaders listen well. They control their temper and they pursue godliness. But number seven, good leaders know that actions speak louder than words. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, well, he is a foolish man. He is a man who observes his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, realizing that either he needs a shave or he needs to get the dirt off of his face. But he sees himself and he goes away. And immediately he forgets what kind of man he was. But in contrast, the one who looks into and knows the, the figure of speech here that is just a, a symbol or a metaphor for uh, the, the word 
He says, he who looks into, notice it now, the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. I've always thought it interesting that James calls the word of God here the perfect law of liberty. You tend to think that the word law and the word liberty are mutually exclusive, but they're not. Because you see, through the word of God, through the implanted word that is able to save your soul, through that word that brought about your new birth, you are now set free indeed from the power and the penalty of sin. And you're now liberated not to do what you want, but to do what you ought You now have a new freedom, a freedom to pursue Christ and to pursue his righteousness and to pursue godliness. And so never get the idea that liberty throws off all obligations. It does not. But rather the liberty that comes through the word of God is a freedom to do the things you ought to do. One man in this context said it this way. People do not follow worthy causes. Rather, they follow worthy leaders who pursue worthy causes. And leadership, we need to understand, never comes instantly. But it grows over time by stages. And therefore, we recognize that over a lifetime, as people observe us and watch us, they will indeed live by the principle that actions do speak louder than our words. But number eight. Wise, mature leaders also help the less fortunate. Verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. Indeed, this one's religion is useless. James has a lot to say about the tongue. The classic text, no doubt, in all the Bible is James 3, 1 through 12. So he contrasts what he calls useless religion with healthy or undefiled religion, pure and undefiled religion, verse 27. Before God and the Father is this, number one, to visit orphans. And number two, widows in their trouble. And in the process of all of this, keep yourself unspotted from the world. It's interesting that he juxtaposes the idea of helping orphans and widows with the idea of keeping yourself unspotted from the world. You say, why do you think that he does that? Because I think the world tends to kick to the curb, the weak, the less fortunate. Oh, we will often give lip service, but we're very hesitant to roll up our sleeves and actually get involved in their lives. I want to ask you a question as I move to bring our study this morning to a close. How do you treat people who are less fortunate? Now, let me say it this way. How do you treat people who can not do one thing to further your agenda? How do you treat people who come perhaps to your fellowship, to your church, and they don't bring resources, but they bring problems? How do you treat that single mother with those two or three or four rambunctious children that are running up and down the halls and that maybe don't smell all that good and perhaps have torn clothes and they are just a terror in the Sunday school or the Bible study room? Are you going to send them back? Like that mother who sent that adopted child back to Russia saying, I don't want this one anymore. I don't want to be his parent. 
How do you treat people who are not going to bring resources, but they're going to bring perhaps problems? How do you treat people who cannot do one thing to further your agenda? In my first year here, I had the joy of inviting Dr. Adrian Rogers to come and preach in chapel. I believe if my memory serves me correctly, we were the last seminary that he spoke at before his untimely death from cancer six months later. I grieve greatly that some of you in this room today never met him, never heard him preach live. In fact, for some of you, he's just kind of a a distant memory, and that's unfortunate because for me, uh, he was the single greatest individual I ever met. Uh, He was an incredibly naturally talented and gifted man. And yet he was always the epitome of grace and kindness. And as uh, a dear friend of his said to me, Adrian had this unique ability to treat the person that he was talking to at that particular moment as if they were the most important person in the world. Because to him at that moment, they were. After he preached in chapel here in April of 2004... I told Dr. Rogers that we were not going to go to the back and let people shake his hand because if we did, we would be there all afternoon. But I said, you just stay up here on the platform and the people who want to come and greet you will do so. And then as soon as that is over, my wife and I will take you and Miss Rogers out to have lunch. I figured that probably, you know, given who he is and the respect that people have for him. I figured that probably 15 or 20 people would want to greet him. But at about 1130, I was standing over here with Mrs. Rogers, and there was a line still down these steps about halfway. I mean, there were 50 people in line still waiting to say something to him. And I just thought, you know, this this is out of control. Uh, this, 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 my students are just stupid. Don't they realize that he, he is tired from preaching and he, he needs to uh, go on. And so I looked at Miss Rogers and she said, oh, no, no, no. If anyone is going to go and get him, it will be you, not me. <laughs> I did not know why she said that, but I did in just a matter of seconds. Because I walked up on the platform where he was standing right here. I came over here and I took him by his right arm to pull him back and to step in and say, look, we need to stop. But before I could move another step, he turned to me and put his hand up on my chest and he said, and I quote, little Danny. When I am ready to go, I'll let you know. And with my strong masculine voice, I said, okay. And I went back over and I sat where Dr. Keithley is and put my hands in my lap, feeling like I had a beanie cap on, suspenders and shorts, high socks and a lunch pail. And I sat there until 12.15. At 12.15, there were just a few people left. And so I walked back up to beside him, knowing that, well, it seems that it's about to be the time that we're going to leave. And the very last person that he greeted was, I guess, a lady in her mid-80s. She was a little short lady. And as she got up to him with tears streaming down her face, she said this. 
I have listened to you preach for years. I never thought I would get to meet you. And I just want to touch your face. And she reached up and she put her hand on his cheek. And when she did, he put his hand over hers. He reached over and kissed her on the cheek and hugged her. And told her how much she had blessed him and how much she had ministered to him. She turned and walked away. And when she did, he looked at me and said, now we can go. He was one of the greatest men, if not the greatest man I ever met. But he was never too big to reach down and touch anyone. I think that's why God raised him up to be such an important strategic leader in the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. I think it's because he was qualified for God to trust him with so much. May it be that by his grace and for his glory, he finds us trustworthy as well. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer today? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for the simple but profound principles that we find in the book of James that help us understand what spiritual maturity really looks like. And indeed, the type of things that will characterize a leader that you can use. And I thank you so much, Lord, that I've had the joy of meeting a man like Adrian Rogers, a a tremendous individual on a world scale that you used in a great way. And I also thank you that last week I met Pastor Sam, just a simple Ugandan farmer who has suffered much, but now believes in you for so much. Both of these men are heroes to me. Both of these men are examples to me. Both of these men meet what they need to, to be qualified to lead your church, the body of Christ. May we learn from both. May we learn to be like both. In whatever station of life you give us or whatever assignment is ours, we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.